please join me in the prayer of illumination. Loving Father, we praise your glorious name and pray that you would increase our wisdom and understanding of all you are to us. With every passing day, we desire to do your will in humble obedience to you, for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our Old Testament scripture for today is from Psalms 111, verses 1 through 10. Please hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson comes from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Listen now for God's word to the church then and the church today. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there are many, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was growing up, one of the fixtures in the Sunday paper was a comic strip penned by Canadian Lynn Johnston that shared the funny, relatable, and often touching experiences of the Patterson family. Its title was, as many of you will remember, For Better or For Worse. An apt title, I would say, for art that sought to illuminate the everyday ups and downs of a family trying to live together under one roof. Now, the words of that title are very familiar and very old, appearing as early as the 1500s in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, written during the Protestant Reformation by none other than Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I blank take thee blank to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. The vow is a confession that marriage, like life, will be full of good days and not so good days joys and pains, comfort, and even strife. No two people, no matter how compatible, can ever agree on everything, and it's best to begin a marriage with that foundational truth in view. As Chuck Swindoll writes in his book on marriage, Strike the Original Match, the labor of working on a marriage can be compared to the work of remodeling a house. And anyone who has ever redone a house, done a house remodel or a restoration, can look back and affirm several truths, each which were learned the hard way. It took longer than you thought it would. It cost more than you figured it would. It was messier than you anticipated that it would be. And it required a whole lot more commitment and perseverance and dedication than you expected it would. And the Corinthians were learning this truth in the school of hard knocks. The house they were trying to build and restore was taking longer and costing more and making more of a mess and requiring a lot more perseverance than they could have foreseen when Paul first joined them together in ecclesial matrimony. 
Having lived together as a faith community for a while, they were starting to trip over some things. They were beginning to see that the bonds of the church, like the bonds of marriage, are often a for better or worse kind of thing. Our reading this morning gives us a glimpse of one of the biggest family squabbles in Corinth. Their home was a vibrant and diverse city. It was a, literally a crossroads of culture, nationality, and faith. Pagan places of worship were plentiful there, including those that were devoted to the cultic religion of Rome. There were a variety of sacrificial practices in those temples, but almost all had a byproduct of some really fine meat. And when the ceremonies were over, nobody really just wanted to throw it all away. So the leftover meat was cleaned and cooked and served at social functions in or around those temple complexes. And whatever wasn't used for the parties went to the local butcher shops to be sold. So a Christian living in Corinth was faced with a very practical and a very frequent ethical decision. To eat or not to eat. That was the question. Now, Paul outlines for us the two basic sides that had emerged in the church. If you were a, an idle meat eater, the key fact for you was that the meal had been sacrificed to something fake, something fantastical, something that did not even exist. And these Corinthians knew that the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the real God, and false gods as well as the false acts of those who falsely followed those false gods, could be completely dismissed. None of it was real. None of it really mattered. So these Christians saw no reason whatsoever to let a good meal go to waste. On the other hand, if you were one of the Christians who objected to the eating of idle meat, you saw yourself as a defender of Christian purity, a defender of traditional values. To you, the eating of idol meat was an abomination and an affront to God. So if one were truly a Christian, they thought, that person would not get anywhere near a pagan ritual. So the non-meat eaters saw the gluttons who went to the lavish parties and dined on the fruits of idolatry as libertines who had no respect for God's law, and the meat eaters looked back at their critics and saw stick-in-the-mud moralists who were not as strong as they were, not as knowledgeable as they were. And this fracture was getting wider with each pagan party, each meaty morsel masticated in this sizzling steak of a situation. Now what, we might ask, does this have to do with us today? Just last week when I was teaching a unit on polity to our current confirmation class, I set up for them a hypothetical case study about the eating of bacon. I started by reading them the passage of Leviticus that says the eating of pork is forbidden. And I then divided them into two camps, somewhat arbitrarily. There was the pro-pig party and then the ban the bacon movement. And we then held a mock debate about what would happen if someone in the church wanted to make a rule that the church could not and should not serve bacon in the fellowship hall. 
It went pretty well, but at the end, one of the kids kind of sheepishly asked, is this a real thing? Is this what the session talks about when they meet? And I said, no, this is not a real debate in our church. But there are debates in the church that still focus on the interpretation of Scripture. We still wrestle with what God wants us to do. And those debates, I continued, are very real. And that is why we would do well to pay close attention to the way Paul tries to resolve this particular conflict in Corinth. Note that Paul, as a spiritual leader, does not spend a whole lot of time analyzing the two sides of the argument. Now, truth be told, he probably thinks the Freedom Party, the I-can-eat-anything faction, has the stronger theological case. Paul knows idols are fake, and he also knows that nothing the pagans do or say could ever really get between God and God's people. But Paul still thought the meat eaters were wrong, not because of their theology, but because of how they were treating their brothers and sisters in Christ. Here in the eighth chapter of this letter, Paul is laying the cornerstone of a much bigger and longer argument. He's building the foundation for a new kind of church. He wants the Corinthians to get out of the muck and the mire of petty and preoccupying debates and build upward toward the real aim of Christ, which is the kind of relationship Paul talks about in the 13th chapter of this letter. He wants the church to marry itself to a new way of being, a new self-awareness, a new ethic that knows in its heart and in its bones that if we speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, we are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That, yeah, maybe we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, We might have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if we do not have love, we are nothing. And if we do not practice love, we gain nothing. The theological label for this idea, many say, is called the rule of love. As we try to follow that rule, I see two very practical questions that we still need to be asking ourselves today in every debate in our church family and beyond. Two questions that Paul wanted the Corinthians to ask in the midst of their argument. And the first is this, what are our own connections to idolatry? Now, none of us, I would venture to bet, are routinely gathering around gold statues to chant and burn incense and offer sacrifices. But we have plenty of idols. Politics can be an idol. A building can be an idol. A way of worshiping can be an idol. Organizational principles can be idols. Power, the need to control things, is very much an idol. And we still form ourselves into camps and factions around those idols. The body of Christ is still at war with itself over all kinds of things that detract us from our allegiance and focus upon God. 
In many cases, our idols are ways for us to hold on to the past, much like a weak swimmer holds on to the side of the pool. We act like we're frightened to let go, scared that if we try to change, we might drown, when what we really need to do is let go and follow the Holy Spirit into new and deeper water, trusting that as we go, we will be held safe in the arms of God and that if we do let go, we might just get to participate in a new and wonderful thing that God is doing. The second question has to do with elitism. Is one group acting like it is more knowledgeable than another, that its views are more important than another? Because that seems to be what was happening in Corinth. Some scholars believe that those who wanted to eat the idol meat were mostly the upper class, the educated elites in Corinth, and they expressed their own freedom by, and I'm using the words of theologian Ronald Allen here, rolling over those in the lower, less educated classes. In Corinth, one group felt so entitled, so justified in their conclusion that they should be the ones to call the shots for everyone else, that the so-called elites could not see that they had lost the ethical high ground and that their actions were jeopardizing the mission and ministry of the church they claimed to love. These are the questions that we have to continue to ask ourselves in the debates and the discussions that we have in the church today. One, are we clinging to an idol that we need to let go? And two, are we imposing our will upon others in an elitist way? As I thought about it this week, my first reaction was to think that adding these two questions just makes our decisions harder, that it's just laying on one more layer in, a, in an already kind of complex discernment process. But the more I thought about it, the commitment to wrestle honestly with our own idolatry and our own elitism might actually make things a whole lot simpler in the end. To realize that life in the church is really a whole lot like marriage. To see that living together within the body of Christ is at its root a for better or for worse proposition. That might just give us a lens for decision-making that's a whole lot lighter and a whole lot easier to hold on to. Mel Schwartz, a prominent counselor and author, has said, as a marriage counselor, I often ask people if they'd rather be right or if they'd rather be happy. And unfortunately, Schwartz says, even though people say they prefer happiness, they fight the hardest to be right. It's really insane, isn't it, he writes, the very fact that we'd mindlessly choose to win an argument at the cost of damaging our relationships points to something terribly amiss. If I need to be right and we have differing points of view, that obviously makes you wrong. Doesn't exactly sound like the stuff of friendships, let alone ro romantic relations, Schwartz says. 
this compulsion to be right, sidetracks our lives and impedes our learning and our happiness. I expect you've seen this play out. And all of us at one time or another are players in this little play. It's playing out right now in our national family, in our church family, and perhaps even in your own family. Even when there is overwhelming evidence against them, even when it is painfully obvious that a person's position is unsupported and ethically wrong, some people just can't let it go. They will stubbornly cling to their position, even to the point of absurdity, simply because they would rather be comfortable in the status quo of their certainty than to experience the deep discomfort of change and uncertainty. Another relationship expert, T. Harv Ecker, says it this way, have you ever noticed, he says, that the people who are the most righteous are usually the most miserable people on this earth? That the ones who always have to be right are usually just taking their insecurities and their unhappiness out on others. Down at rock bottom, down at the ground level where the whole building rests is the truth that Martin Luther learned from Paul, and he said it this way, a Christian, he wrote, is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is also, he continued, a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. To be in Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, is to be at the very same time both free and bound, both master and servant, both Lord and slave. Paul tells us that it is not enough to be right that relationships need to be right also. To think always of how our living is affecting the lives of others, how our consciences cannot ignore the consciences of our brothers and sisters. That is the lens. That is the rule of love that binds us together. The conviction that as we look to Christ and as we look to one another, we will try to walk together for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. Amen.